from the base Christian communities in the Philippines that overthrew the tyrannical Marcos regime, to the civil rights movement in the United States, to the ongoing movements for black lives and immigration reform. Faith-rooted organizing has changed the world. Now, join Dr. Alexia Salvatierra and me, Lisa Sharon Harper, on a journey through the principles and practice of faith-rooted organizing. You will discover how to discern the Kairos, define your landscape, build and equip your team, center the marginalized, develop new leaders, and heal your community. Now available on demand, check the podcast notes for a direct link to the power and practice of faith-rooted organizing. Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, also the land of the Lenny Lenape people, I am Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. Only this time, we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we are joined by Natasha Sistrunk Robinson, T3 Leadership Solutions founder and co-chair of the Leadership Links, most noted for her book, A Sojourner's Truth and Mentor for Life. Natasha's latest project brought together a bunch of dynamic women writers to contribute to Voices of Lament, Reflections on Brokenness and Hope in a World Longing for Justice. Now, I invited Natasha to speak with us today because I believe Voices of Lament lifts the curtain to help us to see past that white veneer of the evangelical church and to see its impact on women of faith, of color. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. So, Natasha, you are known for your work on leadership in the evangelical space, and yet now you've edited a book on lament. <laughs> you know, what, what led you to do this project? I was lamenting. I was crying. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, we had the the pandemic happen at the beginning of 2020 and my family, we end up moving to Alabama the summer before. So it was the summer of 2019. Wow. It was unexpected. It was very quick. Like we move within a month and I was grieving that transition. So we moved from my husband's job. I had been in our area in North Carolina for about a decade. Both of us are from South Carolina. We've lived up and down the East Coast for work and, and things like that. Wait a minute, wait, but, wait, wait. So where where in South Carolina? I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I grew up where in Orangeburg, Orangeburg, South Carolina. My husband grew up in Conway, which is not far from Myrtle Beach. And so, so Orange, I'm sorry, Orangeville, mm-hmm. Orangeville, Orangeburg, Orangeburg. Sorry. So sorry like, everybody like the, from fruit, the fruit orange and the color orange and B-U-R-G. I got Orangeburg. that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But where exactly is that in the state? Like, is so it it's near about Charleston or? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's about 45 minutes south of the state capital of Columbia. It's mm. about an hour and a half from Charleston. So I, I've actually written about a lot of this in my memoir, A Sojourner's mm. Truth. 
because mm-hmm. there's a lot of history of the civil rights movement involved mm-hmm. in that. And, and mm-hmm. you know, when when Emmanuel happened, that's mm-hmm. something that had a direct impact on our community because several of the people that were murdered in that church had gone to South Carolina State University, which is where my hometown is. So that's where I'm from. That's okay. where I'm from. And wow, you know, so you are yeah, you are a southern girl. You are from oh, absolutely. The south. I'm, I'm from are, the south. Wow. And okay. so the problem with going to Alabama, Lisa, yes. is yes. that psychologically, yes. in my mind, it's like the only place worse than South Carolina is Alabama. The only place worse than Alabama is Mississippi. So, like, Alabama is not my place. That's not like, only have, in your mind, okay? I'm that's just not telling only you, in your sis. Mind. No, that, that's literally, that's, you know, on the education ranks, on the health, you know, indexes and ranks. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. are the states that are always at the bottom because... Right. Their politicians always block money for Medicare and things like that, like things that actually would help people. Hello. Yep. yep. And wow. so, plus you know, you have racism. Plus you have racism. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was it was clear to me. I had felt like I know where home is and mm-hmm. my body knows where home is. And I felt not at home. So I was grieving a sense of not belonging in right. a place. And that had been much. My whole family was. My husband was. My daughter was. And I'm a very communal person. And so one thing I love about being where we live is that I can get to all of my loved ones, like within a day trip. Like I can just get in the car and go. And I could not do that there. And so it was just very difficult. And so my point is when the pandemic rolled around yeah. and everybody started feeling anxiety and isolation and all those things. You know, my family, we were like, welcome, join the party. Like, this is where we've been. And it's something I had been wrestling with the Lord with. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And and so you have all that happening. And then, of course, the pandemic led into summer of 2020, which I call George Floyd summer. Right. So then you had all the racial unrest with all of that. And so that's where I was as far as Bible reading, prayer, mm-hmm. you know, when I started writing this project. Wow. So where has lament risen for you? In the midst of the last couple of years, like especially, especially, you know, leading up to election 22 and seeing the church, seeing the, mm-hmm. the, the situation in the evangelical church mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Not surprised. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think it's pretty consistent. Right. And I think for people who are new to the race conversation or the just conversation, it felt like news to them. It didn't feel like news to me. This has always been a part of of my life, like as far as understanding the upward fight and mobility and resilience of Black people and how that connects to, because I do think a part of it is gendered as well, equity for women. And and I think it's coupled with what's happening nationally, but then also what's happening, you know, personally. And so, and so my thing is, you know, there was grief, you know, with all the Trump years, right, of the racist things, but also the sexist things. and. Wait, can I, can I ask you, can I ask you just to sit on that for a minute? Because I don't think, I don't think people appropriately appreciate the level of grief of women of color in the evangelical church. Yeah. During that time. Yeah. During the Trump years. And that's one of the things I think is the biggest value, quite honestly, of Voices of Lament. Yeah. Is that it pulls back the curtain so that we can see. Absolutely. We can see the impact of not only those years, but all of this, the rise and the normalization Mm-hmm. of white Christian nationalism. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but mm-hmm. but I, I wonder if you can just tell us, give us, you know, share with us a story 
mm-hmm. something you you lamented. Like what what actually led you to tears during that time? Well, I think that this is why I say I, I, spiritually, I expect sinners to sin and I expect them to love it. Right. <laughs> right. You know, so apart from God's grace, I think people are incapable of consistently showing up in a way that's loving and kind and true and, and just. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Trump is who he is. And so I don't spend a ton of, ton of energy on him. I think the lament was, was that so many of the white evangelical church, and and you know this better than me, but the numbers, the statistics were very clear that white men and women, especially those who identify as evangelical, overwhelmingly supported him in their vote. And Mm -hmm. so I think the, the issue there is that, again, there was just so much inconsistency with how this person was showing up as a leader. And how Jesus shows up as a leader, the inconsistency in values, right? And and, and I think there's a hypocrisy, too, of, you know, values that we profess to proclaim as Christian people and what we were seeing from not just Trump's leadership, but also his, his, his character and how he spoke about people. And there seemed to be a compromise, you know, with him that... Mm -hmm that certainly I know his predecessor, Obama, did not get from that community. I I know Mm -hmm, that to mm -hmm, be true mm -hmm. for for sure. And so I think those were some of the main things. So people were not just wrestling about what was happening politically and nationally. They were wrestling about what's happening in their own families and in their own churches when they're Mm -hmm. in these churches where they are either a minority, a racial ethnic minority or, or a woman, or they're in these churches or communities where people are saying, I'm for you, I'm a sister or brother of Christ, but then you're supporting something that's clearly harmful to me. And I think that's where the lament was. Yes. Wow. Well, let me just tell you, I mean, I, I actually have huge respect for you and for mm-hmm. many of the women who wrote in this book because many of them, not all of them, but many mm-hmm. of them live in a conservative evangelical world or have mm-hmm. risen out of that conservative evangelical mm-hmm. world. It's not even just like, progressive evangelicals, which is kind of where I live right now, and mm-hmm. it's moderate evangelical, but it's like conservative. As mm-hmm. in, you're talking about women writing in this book who for much of their lives, especially if they're older, if they're, and by older, what I mean is like, you know, Gen Xers, especially. Mm-hmm. We're older now. We're older now. I know. That's your rule. I remember when Reality Bites was like, like new. <laughs> Back when I was in grad we're, school, we're now bikes came out. Yes, yes, exactly. And so it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is us. This is our generation, the Breakfast Club generation, right? Yep. So, but yes, especially if you are in our generation or older, boomers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you were not encouraged to lead. You were not encouraged to speak, let alone, I mean, like barely mm-hmm. to speak and barely even to lead worship. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could not, in fact, I was told I could not lead worship because mm-hmm. I was a woman in one of these mm-hmm. spaces, right? And so you have gathered many of these women who rose out of these spaces to speak. Yeah. Not only to speak, but to lament. So yeah. I, I look forward to talking a little bit more about that, but I just think that really needs to be appreciated. So yeah. why Psalm 37? Because Psalm 37 for me, as I was, as I was reflecting on it, have you read Soon, Dr. Soon Chan Ra's book on lamentations? I've read, I've read all of his books. Of course, right? Yes, he's like he's, so fabulous. He's my he's academic a... advisor for my doctoral oh, program. That's right. So I, I read like literally all of his books. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, then you know what I'm talking about. In his lament, in his book on lamentations, his commentary, 
He actually talks about the fact that there are multiple different kinds of lament. <laughs> and one of those kinds is the dirge. It's actually like when you realize there's a body and a dead body in the room and it's not going to rise again. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have to recognize that. And so much of the evangelical church is very triumphal. It doesn't know how to lament. It skips over the actual weeping part. And I was struck by your choice of Psalm 37 because it does tend, and it's at least it feel it felt to me like a, okay, you know, buck up. It's not going to be so bad all the time. We're going to get through this kind of a psalm. So mm-hmm. what was it for you that landed you on Psalm 37 in particular? Yeah. So at the time I was doing my personal Bible reading, I was reading through Psalms and I was reading through Jeremiah because Jeremiah is like hard and you need something kind of balance it out. <laughs> right. Like I read the whole Bible. And so mm-hmm. like when you get to those passages, you kind of feel like, OK, I need to balance this out with something. So I was balancing mm-hmm. it out with the Psalms. And so mm-hmm. I just happened to. I'm saying happened to divinely kind of led to it. I was reading Psalm well, Jeremiah 9, at the same time when I was kind of coming up on Psalm 37. So Jeremiah 9 is God talking to the prophet about basically Israel's state, right? And he's saying they're going to go into exile and all these things. And, and so he tells Jeremiah to call for the wailing women, call for them to come and wail over us. And he said, and you, they're wailing uncontrollably. It's like until their eyes overflow with tears. And he says this, why are they wailing? They're wailing because the men have been taken out of the public square. The children have been taken out of the streets and death has climbed in through our windows. And then he says also to them, he says to tell them to teach their daughters how to wail and to teach one another a lament. And so that's really where the lament piece came from. Yes. That, you know, there, there was a national crisis. Right. There's a national crisis happening. Like things are death is all around us. Yeah. And and the, the, the women who are most likely professional mourners, that they are the ones to call because they know how to respond to this. They've yeah. been in this place before and therefore they can lead us in this lament that's needed because what we are suffering is worthy of lament. So that's yeah. really where the lament piece came from. When I read through Psalm 37, what Mm -hmm. I get from it, Lisa, is how God deals with the wicked and how God deals with the righteous. Okay. And so one of the things that we really talked about in community, so these women that I wrote this book with, we have been writing this book for about two years and we were meeting once a month. We will pray together. We will read through the Psalm together. And so when we were writing, even if you look at the subtitle of the book, Reflections on Brokenness and Hope in a world longing for justice, like it was really important. Like I don't believe in giving people false hope, but there is a, there is a, a, a word from the Lord mm-hmm. and God makes it very clear how he's going to deal with the wicked and how he's going to deal with the righteous. And so Psalm 37 allowed us to write from that place of what God has promised us, even if we don't see it right now. And so that's really why I thought it was important by connecting this Psalm to this call that we see in Jeremiah. Wow. That is, I mean, like literally I got chills you sharing that because yes, Jeremiah 9, wow. Like that, that was actually the impetus for lament mm-hmm. and that you had the vision. Because as I was reading the book, as I was reading these chapters from women, I know very well, many of whom, you know, we need to say we're on the, on the Ruby uh, Ruby pilgrimage. Yes. Back in the day, 2017, <laughs> I think is when we it went. Was. Um, yep. And then others came later. But, you know, I I was really struck that 
what that's what you've done with this book. Like this book is basically bringing the women forward to whale. And that's why for me, it felt like you kind of ripping off the curtain. Because when we talk about the white evangelical church, mm-hmm. we don't normally talk about what's going on inside. We talk about what they're doing outside, like how they're impacting everybody outside of the church. Mm-hmm. But we don't understand usually what's happening in the families of the, of, of the people who are going to the church, what's happening, especially for the people of color who are going to these churches where they're not talking about issues of justice or even worse, they're preaching against justice, actually saying yeah. that justice is evil and saying that something that is evil is just. And that is the epitome of evil in the scripture to mm-hmm. call something good evil and something evil good. So thank you. Thank you for this. Wow. Go on, girl. This is so great. <laughs> so, and I love your process too. I love that your process led you to work with these women over the course of two years. Uh-huh. So that means this came out with this. When did this come out? It came out it just in came out right? in September. Just came That's out. That's what I thought. Uh-huh. Just not too long ago. So that means that you were working on this from, was it from the time of George Floyd? Yep. Was right. it inspired by? Well, we probably started a little bit before that, but that was heavy on. And then, you know, so we went from, you know, COVID and we had a lot of members in the community who lost family members during COVID, Mm -hmm. some from COVID, some not, to George Floyd. So you have the racial unrest there, particularly with with Black people, but also like global people were paying attention. We went from that to watching Haitian refugees being lassoed at the border. And we have two Haitian sisters in our community. We went from that to the rise of Asian American hate because, you know, again, because of some of the rhetoric of our president who was causing this, calling this a Chinese virus and, and stuff like that. And so we have a lot of Asian American sisters that that was happening, you know, that whole murder that took place in Atlanta. And so all those things were happening. And, and also there was a lot of violence happening and assaults with their elderly as well. And yes. so all these things were happening at the same time mm-hmm. over the course of our writing. And so when we came mm-hmm. together, it was a call for the women to wail and to do that purposefully and intentionally. Because one of the things the Bible says in Jeremiah, in our English translation, it calls them skilled. Mm. And so it's not saying they're not emotional or insignificant. This is one thing I write about. Like they are, this is a, a profession. It is an intentionality in how we are approaching these issues that we're seeing that mm. cause us so much grief. And it's striking too, because I think that in today's, especially for millennials and Gen Zers, I mean, they're all about authenticity, right? So they're mm-hmm. going to hear that and they're going to go, wow, see, these people are like paid to cry. Come on now, that's not even real. Get with it, you know? Although they probably wouldn't say that. That's more of a right. Gen Xer thing to say. <laughs> the get with it part. But but what I would say is that they would they would look at that and say, oh, that's not authentic. But the reality is, is that lament, it, it, actually, it actually takes skill to yeah. get past the ways that we suppress our, our sorrow, yeah. to get past the ways that we numb our grief and actually allow it to flow and to, to, to be able to craft the language to hold it, yeah. right? So that, that's really what you've done. And I'm kind of literally blown away by some of the pieces that I've read in here, and I can't wait for others to read it. 
These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So, Natasha, I want to just go through some of the women that you have. First of all, you have a foreword by Latasha Morrison. You obviously have edited the book and also contributed a few different pieces. Mm-hmm. And I know there are lots of amazing women who are a part of this, but I just want to give a shout out to some of them that I know. Marlena Graves, our sister, Sandra Van- Maria Van Opstel, mm-hmm. um, Ruth Buffalo. I couldn't believe you had. I was like, that was an I Look, it, it, it was a awesome. press, but we got it. I'm like, Ruth, we're going to get across this finish line. We got it. Really? We got it. <laughs> She was amazing. Like she was really, that was an amazing chapter. And I've heard, in fact, you know, I went and visited her on her land and spent a week with her and her family. So when I was listening or reading the story of the, of, um, of the flood, the flooding that the legislative act caused for the Mandan Hidatsa Rikara nation, I was like, I was there. I've seen that. They call it a lake. And she is very, very clear. That is not a lake. It is a reservoir that was created and under at the bottom of that reservoir is the town that her father grew up in. Like the town has been flooded. So talk about need for lament, things to mm-hmm. lament. So her section mm-hmm. in particular just felt really, it, 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 was, it was close to home. Mm-hmm. And then Kathy Kong and Carolina Hinojosa Cisneros, I just love her work. And Patricia Raybon, she's been, she, in fact, her her book, My First White Friend, Red which is, it's old, right? It's, I mean, it's like about 20 years old. And it's good. And mm-hmm. it's amazing. And it was mm-hmm. one of the first books that I ever read that made me say, you know what, Lisa, you can do this. You can Same. write a book. Same. You too. Same. Because it was really, I have to say, maybe it was, I don't know, but it, it feels like it was the first book by a Black, and I don't know if she calls herself evangelical, but she was being read in evangelical spaces. She's AME woman. woman. Always been an AME woman. <laughs> AME. So, you know, that is kind of evangelical. It's mm-hmm. black evangelical, right? Mm-hmm. So very different than white evangelical. Absolutely. But but you know, she's she's a woman of faith. And, Absolutely. And and so it was she was the first black woman of faith that I ever read in a book. Like who never wrote a book. So that I had read. So now it's not true. Obviously, there are many others that have written. Come on. But she was first one I read. So yeah, that was very inspiring to me. So you got her, you got Kay Ellis. I love her work and her husband, Carol Ellis, Jenny Yang. Girl, you got everybody up in here. I'm just like, where am I? Hello. Well, I can tell you that. No, I can tell you about this too. I can tell you about that. So for me... So it's 29 women, counting myself. Wow. And as an act of justice, there's a few things I wanted to do intentionally. Um, you do not have to explain why I'm out in the book. No, no, but, was- it's, but, but no, no, but, but it's not just about, it's, but it's not just about one person. Because I want people to understand the significance of how the project was brought together. Of this group, yeah. Yeah, and, and what, in my mind, the work that I believe the book can do, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So part of it is I had invited, so out of the 29, about half of them I have personal relationship with, right? We've done something together, personal or professional. And then I have invited some other people and say if they weren't available or whatever, then I asked them for a referral. And it was Mm -hmm. a referral from their same people group. 
mm-hmm. because there was, I want there to be equity of, between like Asian American women, Latino women, African American women, and then what I'm calling global citizens and indigenous women. And so that was very, very important to me. And also that there was diversity represented among those women as far as how they showed up to lead. Like they're all doing kind of different things, you know, so there are some justice advocate, you know, people, there are some pastors, right? There are some people who are leading nonprofits. You know, there are people who are mothers, right? And so I'm going to just kind of show that diversity as well. There's diversity among the generations. That was very, very intentional as well. And then the last part of that, and to the point of um, about half of these women already have a platform and about half of them didn't. That was very intentional on my part. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. because there's a ton of great women like that I know and love and could have invited, you know, yourself, Brenda Salter-McNeil, the Truth Table women, right? And I didn't ask any of them because you have great platforms, right? And then so it's, but the part of this is I wanted to platform some other women of color that I felt were solid in their faith, that had the credibility of their community to speak with mm-hmm. confidence and, and that I know their community would respect their representation of them. And also women that had a potential to speak to the future of where the church is going, right? Mm-hmm. Because my thought is, is that, you know, when they are, their name is attached to a book like this, to all these other women that you and I know and love and name who are platform, that it would be an opportunity to open a door for them, you know, for when they get ready to say more of who they are and more about their people and more about how God has been faithful to their people, that mm-hmm. this can be the thing in which they can point to to say, I've already done this and this is where I started. I'm going up from here. Praise God. That's great. Well, I I really do respect that. So uh, as I said earlier, a lot of the women really have risen out of conservative evangelical spaces. I mean, I'm talking about, and I'm not talking about fundamentalist or like explicitly white Christian nationalist spaces, but I am talking about spaces like Campus Crusade and Varsity, Young Life. World relief is wonderful, but yet it also does kind of minister with, within that particular stream of the church. And so as I, as I saw that, I, I thought I started to see a strategy here. I'm like, oh, okay, is, is there a hope that Voices of Lament will help, kind of help guide the evangelical church in this time? And it really is experiencing a time of examining, you know, a time of looking inward and asking some really hard questions of itself. Yeah, it's a good question. I want to answer it honestly. I, I, I just, I really wasn't so much thinking about them, if I could be honest with you. I just want to be honest about that because, yeah. again, I think going back to the Jeremiah passage, so one of the things that the pastor says, teach your daughters how to will. Teach mm-hmm. one another a, a, a lament. And so part of the writing, and, and mm-hmm. I think you and I have talked about this before. When I'm writing, I'm thinking about what do I want my daughter to know about God? Mm-hmm. What do I want her to know about her mother? What do I want her to know about our family mm-hmm. and our people, Black people particularly, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. our faith, right? That's mm-hmm. what I'm thinking about. And so when I'm thinking mm-hmm. about all these beautiful people of color that God has created in his image on purpose, right? And I'm thinking about the hope we have a revelation and how all of us will be worshiping together at the throne of God. I'm thinking about what hope and what truth and what revelation can we offer to our own people who are struggling in this time. So that was the main, that was the forefront of my mind with that. Now, 
I think the other part of that, though, and I've written about this in my memoir, Sojourner's Truth, I think it is very, very important. And I'm, I'm actually thinking about this every day now as I write my dissertation. When we understand systemically of how social structures work and how narratives are created and how myths and stereotypes and what Dr. Patricia Collins called like controlling images, like how those shape how we respond and show up to with the other, particularly how social structures are formed. I think it's important for people of color to tell their own stories. Yeah. I think that's extremely important. And so if any work is to be done, mm-hmm. I think it's the truth telling about who we are and not the white gaze of who, you know, how the narratives have been crafted about our people. And so I think about that, mm-hmm. how it impacts immigration policy mm-hmm. and reform. I think about how that impacts the narrative of how, you know, white people talk about black people. Like, so the, the, the conversation would be, oh, well, he's a thug and therefore, or there's no father in the home and therefore. And that's just not the reality of how I see Black people. Yeah. And it's not the reality of Black people I, I'm with. And so I think if anything, it's the truth telling stands counter to the lies of the narratives that's been told about our people. And for those who have ears to hear the truth, then I think there will be promise for them to, you know, change their, their ways, if you will. Sure. Because they, they are not believing a lie that's been told to them, but they're getting to actually look at other mm. people as humans and see them for who they truly are. That's what is important wow. to me. That's deep. You know, I mean, I think when I think about, I get, I'm a very uh, um, visual person, so I get images of things in order to understand them. And the image that I get of this book is almost like a, like an army of Harriet Tubman's. Mm-hmm. Because Harriet went back into, down to the plantation. She went down into the spaces of captivity mm-hmm. and, and she guided people out. Mm-hmm. And her focus was not on changing the hearts at all of the, the owners, the ones who were enslaving. But hers, her focus was on bringing people out Is of it? captivity. Would you say that, that that's a good yeah. image? Yeah, it's a wonderful yeah. image. And you think about Freedom Road, right? I believe God wants people to be free. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, MLK talks about this. Mm-hmm. Freedom is not something that's readily given. It must be demanded, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, so that's kind of the posturing of, you know, of that. I, I will, yeah, I think that's the posturing. Of and, and, and I think Harriet is a good image. And I think Sojourner Truth is also a good because she did that important work as well. But see, with Sojourner Truth, the difference between the two and, and Sojourner Truth's focus was on changing the hearts and minds of white people. Because, mm-hmm. you know, she was on the, on the revival circuit. And mm-hmm. she, that's true. That's true. You know, she really, her focus was on, and I think everybody has a role. Like she had a, a very specific part. and powerful role. The that same part. with Frederick Douglass, who his, his goal and his goal was to, was to change the law. And so he actually mm-hmm. worked with lawmakers who were all white men. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and, and he wrote and he spoke to white audiences in order to help unlock their minds, right? Mm-hmm. But Harriet did something very specific. Mm-hmm. And I see, and what you say is the, was the impetus. I see a Harriet Tubman spirit coming mm. out of you. Maybe that's your next book. <laughs> we'll see. Because you already Sojourner's like, Truth, no, we'll, right? I, I, yeah, I love her. Yeah. No, but, but I, I think you, you make a good point, Lisa. And I think that's kind of the thing I'm leaning into as well is that each of us have different work here, but it is a collective work, right? It is a collective work. And if we do it well, 
um, with good intentions that our work will enhance and reinforce the work of the other, right? And, yeah, and that's I think, right. you know, when you have all these women representing different spaces, you know, I think about a Bethany living right there on the border and, you know, writing from a place where she has family members in Mexico and family members in Texas, like that's a different space. Like that's never been my life and my story. And so, so there's a way she's going to speak to her community and there's a way she's going to speak to the nation about that reality in a way that I can't, right? And so mm-hmm. this book is a collective, it's a collective wailing, it's a collective lament, it's a collective education, but it does collective work, I believe. Did you know where you wanted to go with this book before you wrote it? Or did you have a sense or did it rise out of the writing of the, of the women? I had a clear vision when I started. And yeah, a very, very clear vision to the point where I, when I went to publishers, it was like, if, if I can't do it this way, I don't want to do it. That's mm. how clear it was. Like, mm-hmm. and so I had one publisher that, that bought into it. It's like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll partner with you on this. And, and they were great partners, you know, with me on it. And that's just the kind of person I am. Like if I have a vision for something and it's clear, then, and I, and the time is right. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. the time is not right. If the time is right, then I lean fully into it and, you know, we see what God does. Wow. So when you, when you ask the question of your writers and you ask, did you ask them to write particular chapters? Say, I want you to write on this. Or mm-hmm. what did you say to them when you, when you invited them to, to write? Yeah. So Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 37. So the book actually outlines all of Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a Hebrew acrostic poem. So it's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so the original writer of the Psalm um, actually only included 21 of the letters. I forget which letter was omitted, but one of them was omitted. And so mm-hmm. you have 21 essays that's covering those verses that are covering, like attached to the Hebrew alphabet. And so that's where that kind of came from. When someone went back to edit the Psalm, just really, he just thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did this. So edit that letter that was missing. And I haven't studied Hebrew, so that's why I'm not sure which letter it was. But they added the letter that was missing and basically included it as an exaltation. So that's the only verse that I assigned to someone. I assigned that one to Patricia Rabine because the way that the commentary was writing about that verse was what I saw and experienced as a call and response in a Black church, right? And so mm. this is an older mm. Black woman. She was one of the older women in our community. She is, I call her queen mother. In, like in the, in the she group, is like and, a queen and, mother. And she, yes. She's a queen mother. I call her <laughs> queen mother. And so she's a, a, a student, a child, a product of the African-American Episcopal Church. I'm like, she is the one to write this. So she wrote a call and response liturgy for that. Everyone else, they just got the outline of how the verses were presented and they selected their own verses. So they selected their own verses. And then what happens also is that it's organized into what we call strophes. And strophe mm-hmm. is just like, this is the themes of how these verses go together. So these five or six verses, each one of those strophes are introduced by a poem or liturgy. And so I've gathered some poets because, I mean, you and I know this, Lisa, like there's a, for those who have been part of justice movements, there's always art and music attached to the strength of those movements. And so if I think about the civil rights movements, there are songs that we can sing right now that will take us all the way back, you know, to, we weren't there, but you know what I'm saying, will help us understand yeah. like the position of where people were or some women's advocacy initiatives. And so I thought it was important to work art into this project because I knew that people were going to be reading hard things and I wanted them to be able to have places to pause and this is where the art came in, the, the illustrations that were done by Patrice Lewis, who's 
um, Shobaraka's wife. And this is where the poems came in. And this is where the liturgy came in because I wanted people to be able to pause and reflect on what they read. And this kind of hopeful piece too, that there was some beauty attached to the brokenness or the ashes that we were reading in the other essays that were pretty difficult to, to get through. Did you see anything, you know, when you were reading through all of the submissions, did you see anything that surprised you? Yeah, a few. A lot of it I, I was aware of. So I wasn't shocked. Uh, th- there was two in particular that really like vexed me. I remember, so, so Carr Richards, she wrote about how her people, the Hmong people, were a part of a secret mission with the military. And I think the CIA was involved regarding Vietnam War and how promises had been made to her people that were not kept. And so basically they lost generations of their men. And then we turned those boys into child soldiers and they lost generations of their boys. And then we left them and didn't fulfill the promises that we made to them. And so even today, several of her people are still getting murdered by their surrounding neighbors by what because of what they did to be an ally to the United States wow. you know, during, the, during the Vietnam War. And so I was not familiar oh. with that. And so that vexed my spirit for a lot of reasons. One, because I'm a, I'm a military veteran. Yeah. You know, two, because wow. this was, I'm reading this at a time when all the rise in anti-Asian hate was happening. And so I'm conflicted because I'm hearing the rhetoric. And I'm literally, this is one of the things that caused me to cry. I'm, I'm hearing the rhetoric from Americans who have not sacrificed anything, have only benefited from things. Many of them who have never served. Hello. Talk, talking about people who have sacrificed everything, but you don't know to your benefit. And you don't know for you to talk about them in such, in such grievous ways. My heart was really vexed for that. And, and, and there were some others too, like some historical figures that I read about. I remember one of the ladies that was crossing back, if I can't remember her name off the top, I'm horrible with names, but crossing back and forth across the southern border to work. And, you know, basically mm. they will wash them with some toxic chemicals because they make sure they didn't have lice and like bashing them with gasoline. It was just horrible the wow. ways that America has treated humans. And then what's troubling to me is that when we see these things happening in other countries, we get so self-righteous. Mm-hmm. about them and what they do and how they respond to their other people. But we never own and speak the truth or confess about the sins that we have committed mm-hmm. to harm and become violent and, and murder, not just other people in other countries, but also our own citizens. Mm. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. So what do you see God saying to the world and to the church through the message of these authors? I hope, so I think that's one of them, hope. Like hold, you know, one of the things that we are, you know, one of the songs I think even from the civil rights movement, like hold on just a little while longer, like Mm. everything going to be all right. And so it doesn't always look like that. It doesn't always feel like that. And, and I think this is the resilience that we have as people of color who have suffered a lot, where suffering has been a part of our faith journey, that we continue to press our way. And, and I think it also reveals the faithfulness of God. I, 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 I do not have a doubt at all about 
the reality of spiritual wickedness and evil and darkness, the principalities and powers that are at work in the world. And I, I believe that the Holy Spirit is, is greater. It is, mm-hmm. is the greater power. And because I have been kept by that spirit, I want to be a person that is showing up, not perfect, but one of the things that the psalmist write about is about being blameless, right? I, I, I'm not acting in a way that's, that's going to say that I'm in alignment with the, with the work and premise and purpose of the enemy in the world, which is to the, the, the kill, steal, and destroy people. And so I I think God has different intentions for his human creation and all creation, really. And we think about creation care. And I think that that intention is is to our good. It's for the redemption that we are not living, be under the curse, enslaved to the curse, that we are living as people in a way that God intended from the very beginning, which is to cause flourishing and unity and, and causing things to grow and to build, right, until Jesus returns or calls us home. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I, I want people to see, that God has been faithful to us. And again, through the psalm, that God will deal with the wicked <laughs> and God will deal with the righteous. And you have people that have every reason. It's a miracle to me that people of color, especially Black people in our country, still be, you know, still Christians, right? And that's only by the grace of God, right? It's only by the grace of God. And so, and so I'm saying if anybody have a reason to be mad, if anybody have a reason to be violent, if anybody have a reason to hate and cause revenge, it's us. And the fact that we don't is because of who God has been in our lives. And so I want people to see the faithfulness of God. Um, Hopefully, you know, that it will draw people to repentance and it will, you know, some people and other people, I hope that it will be a source of freedom and healing for them. Can I just say, I really think that the title of this book should be Voices of Resilience. <laughs> like, I think that that's... <laughs> See, you should have come to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really kidding. I'm really kidding. Yeah. But, you know, so... But but I really do, like, that's at the heart of what I hear you even saying yeah. about the book. And I, I actually think that that's at the heart of what we are longing for right now. Like, we are longing for the ability to get through this and to have justice. Don't get me wrong. Like mm-hmm. that last part of your, I love this, a world longing for justice. I love that. But man, like the resilience part is really what, what strikes me, even in the Psalm 37. So you had these two things going on in the book. Yeah. You had Jeremiah 9, which is the lament. And yeah. you had the Psalm 37, which is really, it really is about resilience. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So when you, yeah. when you share this book now with your daughter, you have one daughter. Is that I have is that one right? daughter. Yep. Yep. And do you have a son as well? I, I, we lost our first child who was a son. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm yeah. so sorry. Mm-hmm. I don't, I did not know that. Forgive me. Please forgive. It's, it's fine. Yeah. So when you share this work of women of color mm-hmm. who are leaders in the faith with your daughter, is there a favorite chapter that she has? So she hadn't read it yet. Okay, you know, you need to sit her down and give her this book. Listen, I'm trying not to look. She already think I do the most. Okay, she likes to think I do the most. She like my every day, all the time. That yes, like she said, my daughter thinks I turn everything into a sermon. That's what you need to know. (gasps) Oh my god, I'm not. I'm not writing for her right now. Fifteen year old (laughs) self, you know what I'm saying? I'm writing for herself because she really hasn't struggled. At twenty five, ten years from now, exactly. I'm writing for that person. 
But I will say that what I have envisioned, what I'm looking forward to, Lisa, is this this day we see in Revelation where you have people from every tribe, language, nation, people group worshiping for, before the Lamb of God, right? That's the vision that's that's always before me, particularly as I think about this book. And so I think we have an opportunity to gather, to learn, to affirm, to see people. And that, for, for me personally, these past two years has been a blessing in my life to be able to, ex- so not just have a product, right? The product is the book, but the experience of writing the book has been very, very rich. And and not just for me, but also the women who have contributed would say the same thing. I'll give you one example. We were at yeah. the CCDA conference, the Christian Community Development Association conference a few weeks back. And Bethany Melanor, mm-hmm. she brought her daughter, Ava. And I think she's six or seven years old. So mm-hmm. we did a book signing, Lisa. It, you know, we thought it was going to be an hour. We had like 140 books. Lisa sold out. We signed books for two hours. So it's me, mm-hmm. Bethany, Sandra, and Grace Cho. Mm-hmm. And we had a couple of people got sick. So, and here it is, Ava sitting right next to her mother with her little notebook signing. Because she's mimicking what we're doing. Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> So I'm looking at the child. It's horrible. Yes. Yes. You mm-hmm. see, because this is a thing. This is about the generational work, right? Again, it's not for them. This is a generational work. Then you call up out of her who she is mm-hmm. because of who her mother is, because mm-hmm. of who her mother serves, because her who her mother is attached to, who's in her community, her tribe of people. Mm-hmm. And said now, because at some point, Lisa, like you said, we old now. <laughs> we yeah. The torch is going to be passed to them, right? And they, they're going yeah. to be ready. And this is the stuff that fortune, right? Voices of the men. This, this is the stuff to get them ready. Yes, it to is. Carry the, exactly. to, carry the, to carry the torch. Girl, do you know that is a literally what went through my mind most of the time I was writing fortune, that I was literally writing it for my nieces and nephews and that next generation so that they would have a foundation to stand on. That's right. And it's their time to lead. That's right. So, Natasha, when you think, you know, 10 years from now, when your daughter is 25 years old, what parts of the book do you think she really will need to read? Like, what do you what do you know she will need to read? Yeah, I, I want her to read Patricia Rayburn's liturgy. The title mm-hmm. is Why Women Will. Okay. And it's a call and response liturgy. And what I love about it is that she mentions the different people groups and, and different languages and there's different names. There are people that she should know. And I think it'll be a great educational opportunity for her because my daughter will be the one to go look those people and those names and those issues up. And some, some even political laws she mentions in there. And so I think, you know, she'll just learn a lot by sitting with those laments and finding out more about the different people that are mentioned in the, the liturgy. Fabulous. Can we read it? Yeah, let's read it. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll okay, respond okay. to your call. Oh, okay, okay. So for those who have the book and who are following along, this begins on page 216. So mm-hmm. the chapter begins on 215, but the lament, rather the call and response begins 216. Of course, we wail for all the doggone wrong done to us and done to all the women and girls and babies who look like us and all the ways that wrong was waged against us, even in the blessed name of Holy Jesus. His faithful love endures forever. 
We wail for being told to get back. Shut your mouth. Wait over there. Stand yourself down and hold your tongue while others talked over us, about us, at us, and against us, as if we weren't even in the room. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for being called gal and nigra and sal and mammy and you people and whatever, and not one of those things is even our name. And to tell the truth, it never was. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for cages that hold children and mylar blankets that hold tears. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for Sojourner Truth, who bore five children, one dead too soon, the other four sold out from under her without a shred of concern for their pain and sorrow, not to mention hers, or the pain of the millions of unknown women who endured the same god-awful thing. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for the Iroquois and the Mohawk and the Pequot and the Oneida and the Seneca and the Arapaho and the Navajo and the Cherokee and the Oot and the native populations in North America reduced by 9 million to a remnant now of barely 3 million by broken promises and treaties and will and sheer hate. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for being told not to be so angry all the time, even when we were just asking a question about what happened or when we spoke out about a wrong. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for the Chinese Exclusion Act, Executive Order 9066, and anti-Asian hate for Manzanar and Amachi and Topaz and Heart Mountain and every other internment camp and edict and rule devised to shackle the lives and kill the spirits of defenseless people because they weren't white. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for the Muslim ban and hate crimes at mosques and Islamophobic lies based on fears and ugly myths and supremacist views that look down on others. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for being told we don't want to be successful, even after standing at the bus stop at 5 a.m. to get to the first of our three jobs in one day to put food on our tables and clothes on the backs of our children who got suspended from school for acting their age in class. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for a novel coronavirus called COVID-19 and vaccine distribution so disproportionate and conspiracy theories so alarming that globally people have died in horrifying numbers. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for those who deny voting rights, won't support universal health care, the human rights of immigrants, or environmental justice, even if the policies give and spare lives. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for Emmett Till and the four little Birmingham girls. Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. For Medgar Evers and Trayvon Martin. For Brianna Taylor and Anjanette Young. For Rayshard Brooks and Tatiana Jefferson. For Stefan Clark and Sandra Bland. 
for Botham Jean, for Dejira Becton, for George Floyd and Ahmad Arbery, for Makia Bryant, and too many others whose names were never widely said or known or acknowledged or cried over. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for being called victimizers when we speak up about all that has victimized us. His faithful love endures forever. We wail for having to laugh when nothing was funny, cry when nobody cared, explain when the obvious was clear. His faithful love endures forever. We wail to a God promises to see us, hear us, walk with us, and go before us. His faithful love endures forever. We wail, knowing God listens, even if others won't. His faithful love endures forever. Thus, in him, we wail so nobody can ever say we didn't trust God to turn it around. Hallelujah, 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 and amen. Amen. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media and produced by Corey Nathan. Freedom Road podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. For the members of the movement who are our premium subscribers, we have an additional little tidbit of a conversation that we want to offer you behind the scenes. So check in with us on our subscriber platform and you will get a special treat. 